I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. from Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. Uh, one of the great blessings of being in ministry here in Salt Lake is uh, every now and again, people come through and uh, we get to meet them. And uh, standing up here with me is Ronnie. He's a uh, former LDS, 41 years, a military man. He came with his friend Mark, who's also a military man, who's in the audience. Ronnie, 41 years LDS. So what happened? Well, you know, just like everybody, for 41 years, I did the LDS thing. I was in the military at the same time. I got to, I thought it was a great thing. I got to uh, serve the sacrament in Bosnia to an apostle or apostle. Wow. Yeah, and I thought that was great. But you have mentioned uh, how they have security and stuff, and I noticed that. I was like, really? You know, Jesus' apostles didn't come. They actually got killed for them, not, not protected, yeah. you know. So then, you know, I had PTSD after about 20 years. And for a few years, I had a hard time coming back into the civilian world, and uh, I turned to drugs. Oh. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I, uh, I started, as I was getting sober, I started breaking down all my thought processes and what, what I was doing wrong. And I did it in religion, too. And my daughter was teasing me one day. She told me that she'll visit me on my planets and all that. And I was like, that sounds really stupid, but <laughs> I didn't know we believed that, you oh. know. So I went and I, uh, I read The Pearl of Great Price for the first time. And I was like, what? Huh. Really? All these gods? And all, I, was, I couldn't believe it. So then I just started my journey. I was just like questioning everything. And then I found the ministry. And you guys have helped me so much, oh, so much. I actually binge watch you guys. <laughs> I do for, for like four months, 12 I hours a day. Eat, you binge watch. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is tremendous. So yes, I, how long ago did uh, you kind of come around to understand Mormonism is not for you, but Jesus Christ is? You know, what's funny is I've always known, I never believed he was my older brother. I've mm -hmm. always had this feeling, you know, that something wasn't right there. Mm -hmm. But truly giving it up to him, probably about eight, eight or nine months. Praise God. And it's just been wonderful. Oh, we're Now so the hard part's my family. Yeah, tell us about them. Oh, wow. As I was telling uh, Warren earlier, I was like, you know, the other day I was telling my family, and they're like, you're just this evil guy, you know, you, your beard's pointed, so you look like the devil. And I was like, yeah, he's a pretty handsome guy here. <laughs> but, uh... And then my sister said to me, well, I've been to the temple, and I have a testimony that is true. So it's true. I looked at her and said, well, I have a testimony that's not. See how that works? And she just shut up. So uh -huh. it was kind of, huh. but I don't know. I'm looking forward to my walk. And now you have a daughter? Yes. Anymore? I have two boys in Texas. Wow. 
And are they LDS? No, they're not LDS. So you'll be able to influence them for the Lord along the way? Yep. Oh, yeah. Me and my, I actually got baptized about three weeks ago awesome. at East Lake Church, and my boys were visiting from Texas, and my daughter was there, so it was cool. That is wonderful. Yes, sir. Oh, we're so glad you came by. You're always welcome, of course, uh, awesome. at campus or here at uh, Heart of the Matter. But we open up with uh, prayer, and uh, do you mind if I pray, and oh, we'll just yeah. do it together? I got a mic, so you just hold that one. Lord, we just come to you. Uh, we praise you. You are a, uh, a changer of life, and you step in, and you give life more abundantly. We rejoice over stories like Ronnie's. Uh, for his courage to come up and just talk and share with people all over the world who will be watching and they'll hear his testimony and uh, we're grateful for him and Mark and all the people all of us in this room who have come to the light in one way or another because of you and your love for us we know you're calling to everybody and we pray that you will use us to reach others with the good news of Jesus Christ so uh, so bless our staff tonight the volunteers people give their time to see Heart go off uh, on streaming and uh, help Ronnie and uh, Mark and everybody else in our journey with you, Lord. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One last thing. Anything you want to say to the audience uh, that just might be on your heart about your journey, about the Lord, about your walk, your baptism, anything? Honestly, just Jesus is the way. Jesus, just Jesus, and that's it. Uh, we love that. Yes, thanks, my Praise brother. God. Thank you, sir. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks, Sean. All right, had the opportunity to catch up with some good old friends last week. Uh, Adams Road crew, they were here. We taped them uh, at a get-together. We're going to air that next week, so we're giving you some advance notice. Those of you unfamiliar with Adams Road, it's a Christian music ministry that travels all over and shares the good news uh, in churches and parks and different venues. They're all former LDS, uh, three men, one young woman now. They're the dynamics of the band have changed a little bit but the thing that makes them really unique is they're so affable uh, they have kind of a we're just here just like Ronnie just did we're here to just share Jesus just Jesus I mean just as he just said it that's really they even have a bumper sticker I, what does it say does anyone know Jesus is enough you know that's it I mean and that is really at the heart of probably most people who kind of orbit around campus and and in the ministry with my heart and other people's hearts, not unique in it, Jesus is enough. So stay tuned next week, October 11th, and we're going to air our uh, reunion. It's been about four years since they've been on the show. Additionally, our friend and brother, Matt Slick, who's on the airwaves here in the Intermountain West in Idaho and all uh, every day, uh, he's the founder of CARM. He's going to be here with us on October 25th. That's Tuesday, October 25th. And we're going to sit and we're going to talk about the Bible. Uh, more and more uh, just about how it's, its place in our walk. It, it, it's an important place, but is it the preeminent place? You know, right now we just heard a bunch of people say just Jesus. Well, if it's just Jesus, it couldn't be and the Bible too. So we love the word. We learn from the word. It inspires us. It teaches us. But Matt's going to sit here and talk with us about some of his views on the Bible and help us out with that. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And that too. Uh, 
If I was going to title tonight's From the Word, it would be Men of the Earth Hotly Pursuing the Poor. Uh, in Psalms 10, Psalm 10, King David, he bemoans a number of things before the Lord. And he says in the first verse, Why standest thou far off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? And then right after this, he begins to complain about the wicked. And he says, The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. This is the first of several times he talks about the poor in these passages. He says, Let them be taken in the devices which they have imagined. The King James says persecuted, but the word really means hotly pursued after the poor. The wicked in his pride have hotly pursued after the poor. What is the hot pursuit that the wicked focus upon? In verse 3, David says, For the wicked boasts in his heart's desire and blesses the covetous whom the Lord abhors. So this hot pursuit is not only it, the wicked's heart desire, but it's a desire that's not ashamed to boast about it either. And we also know that in the process of all this, the wicked praise those who are covetous. And uh, that's a characteristic, David says, that God abhors. He abhors that, right? That's a, that's a very potent word, that God abhors certain people uh, going covetously after the poor. Later, we'll read David generally refers to these wicked types as the men of the earth, the man of the earth. So, so far, who's the man of the earth? In his pride, he hotly pursues the poor. In his pursuit, that's his heart's desire. He boasts of this desire and he praises the covetous. Uh, the 10th commandment is we are not to covet. And the, the, the wicked man, he praises those who uh, live in covetousness. After describing the wicked in some depth, at verse 7, David says, His mouth, the wicked, is full of cursing and deceit and fraud. Under his tongue is mischief and vanity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places does he murder the innocent. His eyes are privily set against the poor. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He doth catch the poor when he draws him into his net. He croucheth and humbleth himself, and the poor may, find, may fall by his strong ones. So this imagery of the man of the earth, is, he's described as a predator, a conniver, lurking in places and waiting. He says it four times, the poor, the poor, the poor. And from this, we can see why David is saying, Lord, why, in the first verse, why are you so far off? Why do you hide yourself in these troubling times? At verse 12, David returns and he says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the humble. So he's talking about the humble, the poor again. And describing the poor as humble, David says, God, don't forget them. And then in verse 14, he says, The poor commits himself unto you. Thou art the helper. Now he starts to define the poor better of the fatherless. Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness till they find them. And then verse 17 and 18, he says, Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause their ear to hear, to judge the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may no more oppress. So David has laid out a principle. There are innocent, humble, 
um, fatherless, oppressed people, the poor, that are hotly pursued by the proud, the godless, the covetous, the wicked. Because David mentions these men of the earth as praising covetousness, we might conclude that the main driver behind this theme that I've just brought up is them hotly pursuing to gain material covetous wealth or material from the poor. Something that God abhors. Uh, God does not like the poor and the humble to be taken advantage of. 163 times the English word poor is used in the Old Testament alone. And it means in the Hebrew translations, they are the dangling, they are the destitute, they are the depressed. Okay, so you can be poor, doesn't this mean monetarily? You can be poor in a lot of different ways. And scripture is replete with directions for the saints and believers and the Jews to help and treat kindly the poor and generously help widows and the fatherless and the orphans and not to put them in bonds. Now the application. Show me a political movement, a religious institution, a criminal enterprise, or any individual that pursues the poor that we've just described in any way, and I will show you the antithesis to the heart of God. We have it laid out in Scripture all through it. Politically, any group that seeks to loom over its constituents, I'm not political, but anyone that tries to loom over the poor and extract from the poor in order to keep uh, their institution alive and well uh, with taxes or duties or loads too hard to bear, that's the antithesis to the heart of God. Criminal organizations, you know, it comes in a lot of different ways. Those who um, pander to debt and uh, addiction, substances, predilections to porn and, and to gambling. When they prey upon the poor and their weakness, their humble and their weakness and their oppression, that's men of the earth hotly pursuing after the poor. Uh, even pandering to, you know, through, in my opinion, this is my opinion, but to religious, I mean, uh, expensive rehabilitation centers uh, or uh, low socioeconomic communities that are preyed upon with ads for smoking and alcohol and, and, and gambling and all of that. That's all the same spirit. God hates it. Okay. Now, all of that is expected in this world because it's a fallen predatory world. But what about religion? And I know it's something I, I harp on, but it's, it's at the core of my heart. Throughout the Old and New Testament, God proves the widows and the orphans and the poor are to be taken care of, not taken advantage of. Taken care of, not taken advantage of. It's incumbent that true religious leaders and their empires refuse the widow's might. Refuse it. That's the context of that passage. If we went into it tonight, that's the context. Jesus isn't saying, look at, oh, praise her, she's given. That's not what he's saying. In context, he is not endorsing that she's giving. You have to see that. And churches need to alleviate the needs of the widow, those on a limited fixed income, the, the, uh, those in poverty. So from Catholicism to Mormonism to the little white church down the lane, 
if the poor are being pressured to give and serve the machine by any means of compulsion. Well, Sister Jones, we know you can't, don't have much money, but we can certainly new, use your efforts to clean the church every Saturday. That way God could, anything like that, it's baloney. So I am, would include propagating theologies that capture their hearts. Remember, when a church becomes an end unto itself and a, a thing to be supported, a thing to be served, rather than the thing that supports and the thing that tries to serve, something has gone very, very wrong in the context of Scripture. God is a God of liberty and freedom. He is a God of mercy. Jesus came to set the captives free, to open the prison doors to them that are bound. And uh, if that ever, ever plays out, I mean, James said pure religion is help the widows and the orphans. I mean, that's pure religion. Pure religion. You can't escape it when it comes to that. So if your religious institution or that of your loved ones is promoting anything like that, walk. Rebel against it. Make your voice known to the pastor. Uh, you know, it's a, this is about helping, not taking. And from that, let's go to our board of direction. Let's see it again, Seth. I came upon a woman last week at a fast food joint. She said she used to watch all the shows. She said, I'm not a Christian, I'm not LDS, but I really loved, uh, you know, the antics that you used to do on the air. And what are you doing? I told her and she said that she was intrigued by the changes of apparel and my anger and the different things we used to do. And she said, but are you honestly motivated by that Jesus stuff? And I said, I, I honestly am. And she said, why does, that, why does that motivate you? She referred to Jesus as that, that maybe the movement. Why does that motivate you? And I gave her some standard answers that were from the heart, but I really contemplated on that for the past five days or so. And on Saturday, I woke up and I, and I had a clarity of thought on it. So why is Jesus uh, motivational to me? And this is, you know, this is uh, something you guys all have gone through and you've all realized as believers. But uh, let me go through and just sort of walk through my life. So we have parents. All right. And we have family. And I grew up in a, a house. My parents were very young when they had six kids. They did the best they could. But I learned very quickly, you can't trust them. Now, I don't mean to disrespect my parents. They did a great job. I love them dearly. But you can't build your house on mom and dad, and you can't build your house on siblings. It will crumble. We all go our separate ways. We all have different views, et cetera, et cetera. Now, my parents, they then, uh, to try to do their best, they promoted church, which for me was the LDS church. And so I had a chance at a young age to make that my life. And just like many of you, just like Ronnie here and, and others, um, I realized that isn't going to sustain me. I could see through the inner workings at a very young age that, that this church promoted the capable and it promoted um, the, uh, often the affluent. The best of the ward would, would be put in positions. And, but worst of all, the worst of the ward was secretly and almost often mocked and ridiculed. And now that might be a, a hasty generalization, but 
I generally made that assessment. I heard what was said about the people who didn't really fit in. And I understood what was going on there. And I've said this before, and I don't mean it arrogantly at all. I could have played the game and been one of the beautiful people, you know. Uh, but uh, for some reason, God would not allow that. So I knew that this, this thing wasn't going to sustain me at all. Okay? And then, of course, you know, you're in your young life, so then you can look to substances. And you know as well as I do that those last only so long. Uh, they're really a, really a poor thing to build your house upon. So whether it was drugs or alcohol or sex or whatever it was, you couldn't do that. I mean, if you have any reason in your mind at all, you know, I just can't make that my life. So then I also wondered about people. Could I make people my life in terms of building uh, something that I could stand upon? And no, people, it's like Jean-Paul Sartre said, people are hell. Uh, and in that great play of his, No Exit. It's not that we don't want to try and we don't want to help, but we can't be relied upon. We have our own selfish endeavors. And so I had to learn that I'm going to have to try to serve people rather than have them try to serve me because I would never trust them. I just, I just became a very distrustful person of all these institutions. And this came to me as that woman's comment, do you really, really... Does that really motivate you, this Jesus? And so then you know from my life that I also went into uh, polit political thinking, and I have nothing to do with that today. And I think that was a good decision, even looking at where we are now. And then, I, of course, I looked to philosophy, and I looked to art, and I looked to humanities. And uh, I realized quickly um, that when it comes to philosophy, I could go through uh, all the great philosophers, but in the end, I realized that of all of them, existentialism, existentialism probably played out best for me. And art, I realized that I was fond of things that are really, really long-lasting, like uh, in metal and in uh, rocks and stuff. And then in uh, the humanities, it fits right in with art. And stuff. But these couldn't satisfy. And it takes me to where in, I was a born-again Mormon. I came in 1996 to realize the answer to the question the woman gave to me. Uh, do, do you really, really buy into? Is that what motivates you? And uh, why does Jesus motivate me? And so here it comes. In him, I found the eternal rock. I found a rock that can't be manipulated. Uh, I found a real man of steel rather than the Kierkegaard or than the Nietzschean Ubermensch or Superman. I found a father. I found a mother I, uh, that I could rely on. Um, I found an authority that I could trust. Man's authority could not trust. I'm not just against authority. I'm against authority you can't trust, and that's every form of authority. So, but I trust his. So I will, I will stand under his authority. I found accountability in him, that I'm accountable to him. And I could trust that accountability because he knows how to deal with me. I found a leader. I found someone that cares, someone who's merciful, someone who is unfailingly loving but yet also strong. I found perfect art. I found the perfect creator. I found perfect expression. And he continues out throughout the eternities. What I was really looking for in all of this 
was um, uh, sustainability. What will sustain? What is sustainable in life? And really, I mean, nothing really is, not even life itself in the human form, but he is. That's the difference. So it's been almost 20 years, and that's 40% of my life here on earth. And he has stuck with me uh, hardcore for 40 years. And so I stand and I attest to him being the answer. If you are finding uncertainty and instability in every other area of your life, you might try giving uh, God through Jesus Christ a chance because he's always there. And it's not a myth and it's not of your own imagination. It's a spiritual sensitivity that when everything else is crumbling around you, he remains. All right. We've talked about God and Satan. We've talked about creation. We've talked about the fall. Past two weeks, we've talked about the word atonement with relation to the Christian and LDS themes. As a natural result of who God is, love, we would, of course, talk about atonement after the fall. Tonight, I want to introduce a new topic that we're going to move forward in, and it falls hand in hand with atonement, and that is the next logical step, the gospel. The gospel. It goes without saying that if your views of atonement are different, like, like between the LDS doctrine and the Christian doctrine of atonement, then your definition of the good news is going to be different as well. And we're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. Prior to doing this, I want to ask the question, what is the gospel? Okay, now there is a standard rote response we give. It comes from 1 Corinthians, and we say it means this. Jesus was born, he lived a life, he was put to death, and he rose on the third day. That's the gospel. But I think that is kind of, uh, it's, a, it's a good short list, but it's not really the uh, entire New Testament definition of what the gospel would include. I think it is the core of the gospel, certainly. The gospel, it's been subject to immense oversimplification uh, and extreme amplification, typically by the cults. They will amplify the gospel meaning, the good news meaning, and then others will uh, oversimplify uh, the meaning. The etymology of the word, the history of the word, where it came from is interesting. S-P-E-L, spell, in Old English means news. So that's why we call it the good news. Uh, God, and it's G-O-D, long O, God, it's not God, so it's not God's news as many people will say that. It is, it is good, gut. So it's gut spell, it's good news. That is the origin of the word, the good news. Now I want you to ask yourself a question. What is good news to you? Because this is really an interesting one. It's a great question to have over dinner with friends because uh, you got to really, uh, might, this might even open us up to ways to talk to the LDS. Let me ask you something. What is good news? Truly good news to you, you might say. Uh, uh, let's just say when it comes to Jesus, what's good news to you? Well, good news to me is he paid for my sin. Is that, is that as good as it gets with Jesus, that he paid for your sin? Well, it's good news, and it would open up a conversation. This might be something we can talk about, how to use the good news and its definition to talk with Latter-day Saint. It's used 99 times, and it comes from the Greek word euangelion, and, which means a good message, good message. So 
euangelion, and from that we get euangelios, which are evangelists who are sharing, and evangelist shares the good message. So we read in the Bible, we have to ask ourselves, what is the good news, uh, the euangelion of the Bible? Okay? Is it that God's angry? Is it that hell is waiting for everyone who doesn't receive to burn? Is it that justice has been met? Is it that God is merciful? Is it that he sent his only begotten son? Is it that his son raised from the dead? Euangelion means in many, it has several different uh, 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 applications in the Christian sense. A message of salvation or a message of how salvation is granted. That's the good news in the, in the, in the most general sense. Um, it was transitively good news applied to the four gospels and they were called the, the four good newses. And, and what was that? That was the life of Christ, which told what he did. He was born, he lived, he lived a perfect life, he died, he raised from the dead. So we have the good news found in those four gospels. Uh, and then it's also collectively used, or should be, to explain the good news doctrines. And uh, it's simultaneously called in Scripture the gospel of the grace of God, the good news of the grace of God, the good news of the kingdom, the good news of Christ, the good news of peace, the good news of the, gl the glorious good news, the everlasting good news, and the good news of salvation. All of those phrases are used, I could give you the references. R.C. Sproul, he's a great thinker of our age, he said, quote, the gospel is called the good news because it addresses the most serious problem that you and I have as human beings, and that problem is simply this. R.C. Sproul is a great thinker, you ready? God is holy, and he is just, and we are not. And at the end, we are going to stand before just and holy God and be judged. And we'll be judged either on the basis of our own righteousness or lack of it. Or the righteousness of another. That leads us into the good news. Will you be judged by your own righteousness or lack thereof? Or the righteousness of another? Sproul adds, the good news is the gospel of the gospel is that Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness, of perfect obedience to God, not for his own well-being, but for his people. He has done for me what I cannot possibly do for myself. But not only has he lived that life of perfect obedience, he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the justice and the righteousness of God. This definitional summary is as good as any others I've read. Sproul, I think, nails it on the head. And I'm going to summarize it down in one more second. But this caused him to say this. Listen closely. For God to forgive you is a very costly matter. It costs the sacrifice of his own son. So valuable was the sacrifice that God pronounced it valuable by raising his son from the dead. So that Christ died for us. He was raised for our justification. So the gospel is something objective, okay? It is a message of who Jesus is and what he did. 
The gospel is objective. It's not subjectively uh, given to us. It is an objective item, so to speak. It is the message of who Jesus is and what he did. It also has subjective dimension. How are the benefits of Jesus' subjectivity appropriated to us, he asks. How do I get it? The Bible makes it clear that we are justified not by our works, not by our efforts, not by our deeds, but by faith and by faith alone. The only way you can receive the benefit of Christ's life and death is by putting your trust in him and in him alone. You do that, you're declared just by God, you're adopted into his family, you're forgiven of all your sin, past, present, future, and you have begun your pilgrimage for eternity. I, I love that quote. I mean, I, I, even though he's a five-point Calvinist, this guy, he, he's on it. That thing is beautiful. I would be so bold to reword it down just so we can say that the good news is that Jesus came and did what we could not do. All who look to him and his finished work by faith are saved from sin and death and become children of God, obtaining eternal life. So that's good news, isn't it? It's really good news. Jesus, who he was, what he did, how he saves us, and what his work makes us. Saved, children of God, having eternal life. This is the good news Paul preached, is it not? This is the good news. It's no more about laws. It's no more about rituals. It's no more about personal righteousness. Uh, okay? So, to the subject of the good news, I have some questions. If we take this good news out to the world and share it, is it the same good news that Paul and R.C. Sproul just described? I would say it is, or at least it should be. Was there anything at all in R.C. Sproul, or who's a theologian, or in Paul's messages about the good news, that included ideas or conversations or opinions about the Trinity, modalism, makeup of God, eternal punishment, hell's literal fire, not literal fire, when Jesus returned, if he did, when he did, futurism, preterism, church authority, doing this, belonging, membership, tithing, Sabbath, anything, nothing. We share good news with people. We want them to understand what Jesus did. He did something we could not do. And because he did what we could not do, that's good news. That's the good news that should be preached to everybody. And we need to be reminded of it as, as maturing Christians, that no matter how far we get into theology and discussions and everything else, it's the good news that's at the core of everything. And that's what we want to share with other people. Um, Listen, Paul said this in Galatians. I'm going to run through it really quickly. Verse 1, Paul, verse 2, unto the churches at Galatia. That's who he was talking to. Verse 6, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you unto the grace of Christ unto another gospel, unto another form of good news. Verse 7, which is not another, 
but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. That word in the Greek means they twist it. They twist that good news we just discussed, that Jesus came, he did it, we look to him in faith, we're saved, we're God's children, we move on to our pilgrimage into eternity, R.C. Sproul said. Paul goes on, but though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed, anathema. Get it? No, that's no good. As we said before, so I say again, he repeats himself here. If any man preach another gospel, another good news, another great message, other than Jesus came and did what we could not do, and by faith, looking on him, we will become God's children and enter into our pilgrimage for eternity. Anyone preaches thing, anything else, let him be accursed, okay? If anyone, even an angel from heaven, if they tell you you must be baptized, that's another gospel. It's not included in the good news. The good news is, that's right, Jesus. That's the good news. Baptism, not part of it. Paul said, hey, I, I'm glad I preached the gospel instead of baptized, separating the two. If someone says uh, you have to submit to their authority, that is not the good news. That's bad news. Authority of a man, that's bad news. Don't believe it. The good news is what we're about. If they tell you you must sign a worthiness statement in order to play in the church band, don't. Believe it. It's not the good news. They can justify it. They can come up with all sorts of reasons why this is important for their administration, but it's baloney. The good news is Jesus came and did that. If they tell you you have to tithe, they use that word even. Support the local church. Attend their services and not others. Go to the temple. Contribute to the building fund that you must, must say God is three and one and one and three or whatever it is. Whatever it is that they insist upon, ask yourself, is this part of the good news? If it's not, I say it's another gospel. It's another form of the good news. Paul continues in Galatians and says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Did you hear that line? But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after men. Men come up with all the extra stuff, the other gospel, in all sorts of ways. Did you catch that men and man, all the alternatives? But the clear message, Jesus came and did what we could not do for ourselves. God so loved us, he sent his only begotten son, and he did it. He finished it. He did it. And we receive that by faith. Not of good works, he makes it clear. After explaining some things about his ministry and circumcision, Paul explains very plainly in chapter 2, and I'm going to finish with this, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we also uh, are found sinners, 
Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Listen to that. If I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. You're a sinner by the law. You bring laws in upon yourself, you're making yourself a transgressor again. The law has been destroyed. He says, if I build it up again and I, and, and I submit myself to laws, I make myself a sinner. For I, through the law, am dead to the law that I might live to God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Mormons aren't the only ones out there that preach another gospel. I could shoot a rifle in any direction and probably hit a church door where they're preaching another gospel and they have crosses on their church. It comes in many different forms. Paul put it this way, the gospel, the good news is what saves. That sounds radically, no, 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 it's Jesus that saves. Let me, let me tell you, Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It, the good news is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Rejoice in the simple good news. All are made available possible by Christ Jesus. This package of good news that comes to us all by and through him. There's nothing more to it. There's nothing less. Next week, we're going to cover of how long the good news has been around. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. We have Ryan in Virginia. We'll come back to you right after this spot. Shoot spot. Hey, that was unfair. I was right in the middle of drinking my whiskey. <laughs> Costa Vida serves up some mighty fine whiskey, let me tell you. Just kidding you. I have to say that because people will write and say, you shouldn't be talking about that, John. All right, uh, we have a picture of, uh, uh, let me see, that's Danita on our screen. I need that to be removed. We're going to, oh no wait, that's Wendy. Uh, let's go to Ryan in Virginia. Ryan, what's up? I'm doing good, Sean. How are you? How is everything? It's going well. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I have started reading your book, and uh, thank you for the book and everything. You have given the best picture of the Mormonism as far as the theoretical is concerned, man. I really loved your book. I, I, I thank you very much from the bottom, Sean. Which one did we send you? A to Z of Mormonism. Oh, A to Z, okay, good. Yeah, that, that's a wonderful book, man. And thank you very much, man. John, I have like uh, three questions for you, all right? Okay, one at a what time. Is, okay, one at a time, don't worry, one at a time. So what is the LDS explanation for the black people who died before 1978? Because the blacks were denied priesthood before 1978. Yeah. What is, the what is the, their explanation regarding that? I like, don't know. Do they I have the chance to go? I don't know the official. Yeah, I don't know the official uh, answer, Ryan. But if I was an LDS missionary and I was asked that, mm -hmm. I would say, "Well, that's why we do uh, temple work for the dead." And probably I would say, 
we go back and we bestow the priesthood and all the temple blessings upon deceased people. And so any black person who died before uh, 78 would receive those things vicariously through temple ordinances. Okay, so that's just like a proxy for them. Yep. Okay. And one other question, Sean. Like, um, according to your view, okay, do we still need the prophet or pope, anything like that, in the current days after Jesus Christ has done everything for us on the cross? Uh, absolutely not. Uh, and the reason for absolutely. that is Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, because of Christ's mm -hmm. sacrifice, God now mm -hmm. lives in believers. And because of that, we don't need external men telling us what we need to do. We have God's spirit, God himself living in us. So the need for prophets and all that is done away with. It's gone away with. And do you have any idea about the community of Christ? I mean, is it biblical or is it part of LDS or what is that? Community of Christ. Uh, what happened was when Joseph Smith died, Brigham Young, he mm -hmm. essentially took the church captive and he had most of the followers. Emma Smith, Joseph's wife, uh, would not mm -hmm. admit that her husband practiced polygamy, and they stopped mm -hmm. short of coming to Salt Lake City, and she and her sons, they established their own church, and that is what became the Community of Christ. The Community of Christ has since changed, and they've become much more evangelical and traditional uh, Christian than uh, Utah Mormonism, but that's where they are right now. They're not... They, they, I think they still use the Book of Mormon. They deny the Doctrine and Covenants. They don't use the Pearl of Great Price, and they deny polygamy. Okay. So, like, uh, is it a biblical church according to your view? Of course. Is it a duplicate church? You, yeah, is it a biblical church? Because LDS is not biblical at all. LDS is just like a cult. That's total cult. I'm sure about that. But how about the community of Christ? Is it a biblical church? At least they profess oh. Jesus Christ. I think they're. I, mean, I, know they I, have the, I think they're right. much closer. Much closer. Much closer. But they have also the prophet in their church, Community of Christ. Yeah. As I know. And there are Christian denominations that claim to have prophets as well. Uh, so yes. you know, it's kind of up in the air. And that's why I would say the Community of Christ is closer uh, than, of course, uh, Utah Mormonism. Okay. All right. I got hey, it. Hey, my Did friend. You see, did you have the chance? Yeah, go ahead, Sean. What's that? Did you have the chance to see the general conference? I see the bits and pieces here and there. And it was a horrible general conference if you look from the biblical point of view. I mean, of course, if you have the LDS garbage in your head, you're going to see, oh, we feel the spirit, oh, we feel the, that's uplifting or all those things. But actually, if you look it from the biblical point of view, their prophet didn't say a single thing, didn't prophesy a single new thing, nothing, no revelation, nothing at all. Yeah. He did say about the word of wisdom, uh, okay, duty to the priesthood, and uh, I think two or three things, like a church callings and all those things. Like, those are like the same, like an old wine in a new bottle. They're doing the same thing again and again. I don't know how people feel uplifted by seeing the same thing. I don't get the point at all. I don't either, Ryan. I don't get it at all, my brother. And I don't watch it. If I ever look at anything, I read it, because I, I don't have time to sit and watch. I'll just, I can read quicker than they can speak. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and one time, one time, Sean, did you, I mean, I don't know whether you remember it or not. I think Ugdorf said, like, our past prophets and uh, seers and revelators made some mistakes. But he didn't say directly which are the things that they, missed, <laughs> that they made mistakes. 
Convenient, huh? <laughs> yes, it's just like no responsibility at all. All right, exactly. Hey, my brother, we got right, other calls. You. Love ya. Okay. Okay, love you, Sean. Bye-bye. All right, we're going to uh, Daniel and Matthew, Arizona, New York. Both were on the phones last week, and we couldn't get to them. Daniel, you're on the air. Okay, so um, drinking. in terms of uh, preterism, I know that tw Matthew 24 is used a lot. Uh, and, but my, so and in Luke 21, the order of events seems to be different. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying it seems to be. Um, and so and if you don't have an answer to it right off the bat, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to blame you or anything. I'm not going to say, aha, or whatever, because I know there's a lot mm -hmm. of in the Bible that just doesn't make sense on the face of it. So, yeah, I, you know what? I, I've ta I remember talking to you, Daniel. I have to look up the Luke uh, passage. I, uh, in fact, I tell you what. Next week, I will do my homework on Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and come back and report to you how the preterists would view those. All right. That's a deal. Thank you for the reminder, my friend. Okay. All right. Talk uh, to you later. Okay. And, see you. All right. And let's go to Matthew in New York, New York. Matthew. Hey, Sean. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Good. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. All right. So I've called in once before. I asked you about the community of Christ. Um, I've got a quick question for you. Yeah. So um, so I am I am LDS, uh, but I have, I've studied quite a lot. I've tried to watch a lot of your programs and get a feel for your theological ideas. Now, um, there's something I've been reading a lot about, which is the difference between justification and sanctification. And there is a lot of differentiation made by by a lot of uh, Protestant uh, theologians. And from what I understand is that justification is separate from sanctification for most. That justification is a declaration made by God on a person, and it's kind of related to what you've been talking about today, where the righteousness of Christ is declared or added to someone's righteousness, or they're declared basically clean, right? Yeah, um, they're, they're, and, imp but they're imputed. Okay. Justification is, the, yeah, you're right, the cleansing. But the righteousness of Christ is not what uh, gives that justification. It, that's what gives the sanctification, the imputation of his righteousness. Right, like, so justification is kind of like a declaration of God that one is, is without sin, right? Right, right. Okay, so, so I've been reading, and I know that, um, so if we read Ephesians or Romans, there are, there are many passages that would indicate that that we are justified, or we're, we're justified by grace or by faith. Right. And I've been reading, um, there's a passage in Titus 3, 5. I, I want uh, some clarification in your opinion. Yes. So in Titus 3, it says, uh, verse 3, for we ourselves also are sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, it's not entirely clear that it, it, it kind of indicates to me that it's talking about baptism and receiving the Holy Spirit when you compare it to like Acts 2.38. But uh, I wanted to get your opinion on that, and it sounds like from this passage, it sounds like to me that justification can't be completely separate from sanctification, but they're kind of, they go hand in hand. But I want to get your opinion on this. They absolutely go hand in hand. And, and I think this is a great uh, question, Matthew. 
uh, and I'm just going to shoot from off the cuff right here, but we know from Scripture, I can't pull out the Romans references, that we are justified by his shed blood and we are sanctified by his righteous life where his good works are imputed to us as we believe. So at the moment of belief, we are both justified and fully sanctified by God. If it was just justification, just the shedding of his blood, we would be like uh, 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 tabula rasa. We would be empty pallets before God. We wouldn't be filthy, but we wouldn't be righteous either because we'd have no goodness about us. So what the Christian, the evangelical Christian belief, biblical belief is, Upon belief, we are both justified and sanctified completely by Christ's shed blood and his righteous life lived. However, once that has taken place, it is then the Christian's duty to die to self and then to have his flesh or her flesh become sanctified by the Holy Spirit over the process of time. This is why the uh, Christian believes in the... Uh, the uh, uh, salvation of the thief on the cross. He didn't do any good works, but he believed at least on Jesus enough to acknowledge him. He was justified by Jesus shed blood. He was imputed with the righteousness of Christ. And therefore he was made a son of God by virtue of faith right there on that moment. And that's how Christians would see it. Okay. So my question, I have another kind of uh, follow-up question, if that's okay. So, so at the time we accept Jesus Christ, we are, like you said, justified and sanctified. However, we continue to commit sins in our life, and we're still there. Are still things that the natural man will, 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 you know, will try to get through and try to get us to commit more sins. So this, like you said, sanctification is still a process. So is sanctification lost? Is it a process? I mean, how how would you describe that? Uh, what I would say is that what we, if we are allowed to tarry after having believed then what we are then uh, doing is we are showing or proving our faith by the lives we live. And it's because we have believed and been changed by the Holy Spirit that we are able then to produce fruits of good works. Those fruits of good works apparently will be tried and tested and, uh, by fi fire and those which remain, the rewards will be given. And those which perish, like wood, hay, and stubble, there will be no reward given. So there's no fooling God with our religiosity. But first, justified, sanctified in God's eyes. And then what happens thereafter tends to, it seems to me, and I could be wrong on this, it seems to me lends to the eternal placement of the Christian uh, in the hereafter relative to resurrection. I'm not really sure on it. That's why I kind of hedge right now because there are other things that say, but in my opinion, presently, right now, that's how I see it, Matthew. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I've read uh, the ESV version. There's a study about it before. It, it, it admits in there, and I thought before that I'm trying to understand the evangelical, the, the Protestant Christianity, and I thought, well, you know, you're either saved and you go to heaven or you're not saved and you go to hell, but it even admits in the study Bible that even in the hereafter, there will still be kind of a judgment of our works and there will be kind of like a reward based on... Absolutely. On. Absolutely. And that can't be denied when you do a, a, a study of the New Testament. That cannot be denied. And it is often denied because what happens is, Matthew, 
uh, we preach a lot about being justified and sanctified by Christ. And we stop at that point and we rejoice in that. But we forget that Paul gives a lot of commands for us to now die, live by the Spirit, and produce fruits of love, evidentiary evidence of the faith that we have on him. So as a Latter-day Saint, I've always said this, uh, I think that you guys have the sanctification of life down. And having been one, I understand the purpose and the focus. But what I do believe is that you've put the cart before the horse. I don't think the, I think that Christ's justification and sanctification of believers is missed. And the believers, like Paul says of, of, of the Jews in Romans 10, they not understanding in the righteousness of God go about to establish their own righteousness. And that is where I think there's the disconnect between the Christians and the Mormons. Hmm. What I think is interesting, too, is I was reading a, a section in Doctrine and Covenants, and it says that only those, it's basically paraphrasing, it says that only people who are supposed to be baptized are those who have shown through their works that they have been forgiven of their sins by faith. That's interesting. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, I'd have, I'd have to find that passage. But I was like, I was reading it, and I was like, you know, that actually kind of follows what I've been reading a lot of uh, some other people have been teaching from the Bible, so it's pretty interesting. Yeah, and that, com that comment in Doctrine and Covenants would not be far off from what many Baptist churches would also preach. Oh, definitely, definitely. Okay, yeah. thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. Thanks, Matthew. You take care, my friend. Yeah, you too. Thank you. God bless. Bye. Okay, uh, we have any time left? One. One minute. Oh, gosh, I've got a stack of emails every week. Next week, we're going to cover the emails after uh, the Adams Road presentation. Let me just summarize. Adams Road next week. Tune in, tell your friends. Catching up with Adams Road. They have a new singer, uh, Joseph and Matthew and Micah. And then, oh, what's her name? Lila. Lila. I knew that. Uh, Lila is with them. That's going to be a fun show. And then on the 25th, Matt Slick is going to come back and we're going to sit. He knows the word really well. But we're going to talk about, hey, Matt, you know, when did this word really become available? When were the books of the Bible really put together? How important was it to the early church? What led the early church? Things like that. And we'll hear from someone who's pretty orthodox in his beliefs uh, respond to some of the things that we've talked about on the show. And we hope that will be a blessing to you guys. Join us next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light filled monkeys.